This morning in our study of Genesis, we come to chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. These are the words of God. Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after them, that they may keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of the five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. God, our Father, we pray that uh, you would open now these words to us that were spoken to Abraham for his benefit, for his growth. Let them also, Lord, be for our benefit and blessing and growth, that we might live to the praise of the glory of your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the first part of chapter 18, where God, accompanied by two angels appearing to be three men, pays a personal visit to Abraham and Sarah. And we saw how he ministers to them, how he shepherds their faith, especially Sarah's, by assuring them in no uncertain terms that the promised son they have waited so long for would come from Abraham through Sarah by miraculous act of the Lord, given that Sarah was past menopause and had been barren her whole life besides. So the first part of 18 is very personal, from God to Abraham and Sarah. And then suddenly in our text today, it seems to shift in a very impersonal direction. 
with the three men, that is God and the two angels, turning towards Sodom and Gomorrah and starting to walk in that direction. Because it turns out that the wickedness of the two cities and the outcry to the Lord because of the wickedness of the cities has been very great. And as we go forward, we're going to see the two angels go to travel there to investigate whether the wickedness is as reported and if so, to destroy those cities. So we're kind of left wondering here, how how do these two things go together? This personal visit to Abraham and Sarah, ministering to them, shepherding their faith, building up their faith, and then destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. We're left wondering, what's the purpose really of this trip? I mean, is it a trip to minister to Abraham and Sarah, and now they're going to also do this thing with Sodom and Gomorrah? Or is it really about Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're just stopping by on the way to see Abraham or Sarah? Or if it's all meant to go together, because chapter 18 and 19 are really one unit in the Bible. It's all one piece. It's like, how, what connects these two seemingly very different things and purposes? Well, the answer is the visit is still ongoing and the visit is still personal because God is still ministering to Abraham. He is still maturing Abraham. He is still building him up because God is going to use the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah to mature Abraham in his knowledge of God his knowledge of the Lord, of the Lord's ways, of the Lord's character, of how the Lord works his ways in a fallen world. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Now, this is a very well-known verse for good reason. It's a very powerful, central verse. And it starts out in verse 23 with God saying, let him who, who would glory in his might or his riches or wealth or power Don't glory in any of those things. There's only one thing to glory in. And he says, let him in glory's glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth, in the midst of a fallen world. For in these things I delight. So this is what we should glory in because This is what we were made for as sons and daughters of God. That's what it means to be images of God, sons and daughters of God. We are made to know God, to grow in our knowledge of Him, to imitate Him in His character and in His ways and in His wisdom. And and then in a fallen world, it's what we're redeemed for. It's the whole purpose. And so that we become more and more and more like God because we become more and more like Christ. And we see how he works loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the midst of a very complicated and very sinful world. He does all of that at the same time. We are to learn. We are to grow. We are to imitate and reflect him. Now look at Genesis 18 verses 17 through 19 and notice the similarities to Jeremiah 9:24. And the Lord said, "Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him." In other words, I have made all these covenant promises to him. 
Then he explains further, for I have known him. That is, I have known him close up. I have formed a personal bond and covenant relationship with him. I have set my love upon him like a father to to a son. In order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord. There it is, the ways of the Lord. To do righteousness, there's that word, and justice, there's that other word, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. In other words, for God to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham and through him to his children and his household and through them onto all the nations of the world, Abraham needs to become a certain kind of man. He needs to grow up into what it means fully to be a son of God, what it means to know God, what it means to walk with God, what it means to imitate and reflect his character and his ways. So God tells Abraham about Sodom. He doesn't hide it from him. He tells him about it to get him thinking at a deep level about judgment and righteousness and loving kindness in a fallen world and what all of that looks like. And to pull, you might even say to provoke Abraham into a conversation about these deep things. Because God makes it seem like he's going to just indiscriminately sweep away the righteous with the wicked, making no difference between them. Verses 20 and 21. So Abraham does get provoked into this conversation. He animatedly challenges the Lord based on what? Based on what standard does Abraham challenge the Lord? Well, as it turns out, based on the Lord's own character. Based on who God is, who God has revealed himself to Abraham to be. And his ways and his character. Now, Abraham doesn't seem, this doesn't seem to be sinking into him or dawning upon him that he's challenging God on the basis of God. He's challenging the Lord on the basis of the Lord. And the Lord loves this. Because Abraham is learning and he's reflecting, he's becoming more and more as the Lord has revealed himself to be. Abraham comes up, verse 23, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked, verse 25, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. There's no difference between them. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Right based on what standard? Upon what standard is Abraham using to call God to measure up to that standard? Well, it's the standard of who God is, who he's revealed himself to Abraham to be already. It's who Abraham knows God to be already. This is inconsistent with the God who has revealed himself to Abraham. And so Abraham is challenging God on the basis of God. You see, what the Lord knows is that we never learn anything so well as when we have to articulate it and advocate for it and essentially teach it. That's when we really, really learn it. And that's what the Lord is provoking Abraham to do in our passage by pulling him into this whole question 
of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is one of the ways of the Lord. God is going to do the same thing with Moses in Exodus chapter 32 when the children of Israel worship the golden calf. Exodus 32 verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go, get down. Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. The people are down at the bottom. Go, get down. Now notice, For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, Moses, have corrupted themselves. Do you see how he's provoking Moses into this? Because these aren't Moses' people. It wasn't Moses' idea. Moses was being a shepherd in the desert. God says, go into Egypt and get my people and bring them out. This was God's plan that he involved Moses in. But now he's saying, Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves and have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot and I may consume them. And then I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. I'll wipe this slate clean. I know what to do with this mess. Wad it up and throw it away. And I'll make of you a great nation. You see how he's provoking Moses into this conversation. Now you have to remember what this makes it seem like is that God is going to do the same thing that he seemed like he was going to do with Abraham in Genesis 18 with Sodom and Gomorrah. Make no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Because if you pay careful attention to the book of Exodus, not all the people worship the golden calf. God causes a plague to break out among the people. When Moses takes the calf, grounds it up into powder, puts it in the water, makes the people drink it. Now, what this is, is a right of jealousy. If you look at the law, if a husband suspects his wife has been unfaithful, has been with another man, but there's no way for absolutely proving it, they would write the charge on the dust of the floor of the tabernacle, put it in water, she would drink it. If she was innocent, she would be fine. If she was guilty, she would get sick. That's, that's what's happening with the people when they grind the calf up and put it in the water and everybody drinks it. The ones who were guilty of the idolatry get sick under the plague. And then uh, they call the Levites to them and to go with their swords all among the people and, and, and to strike people down. But they're not doing it indiscriminately. They're striking down the ones who are sick because of their guilt. They're not just willy-nilly killing people. That's what's going on. So you see, not all the people are guilty of this. So God makes it seem like he's just going to wipe all the people out. So, so Moses is really responding to the same kind of situation that Abraham was. So Moses pleads in verse 11 and verse 12, Why should the Egyptians speak? He, he's saying, let's think this through, Lord. Let's think this through. What are the unbelievers going to say if you do this? The unbelievers are going to say, the Lord brought them out to kill them. Instead of the Lord brought them out to redeem them and bless them, the Lord brought them out to kill them. 
Turn from your fierce wrath. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember your promises. Remember, essentially it's the same thing. Remember who you are. That's really what he's saying. Remember who you are. Who you've revealed yourself to be. To whom you swore by your own self. You see that language. He's challenging God on the basis of God. And so then he he says, you promised to multiply their seeds as the star of heaven and all this land you said you would give to their seed, which you cannot fulfill if you wipe them all out and make a whole new nation from me. Then in verse 14, it says, so the Lord relented. You see, the Lord here is basically, in a sense, pretending to be ignorant so that his son whether it is Abraham or whether it is Moses, will instruct him. But who's learning here? The Lord isn't learning anything from Abraham. The Lord isn't learning anything from Moses. But Abraham and Moses are learning a ton because they have to articulate, they have to advocate, they have to teach, they have to stand for, they have to take on and and incarnate these ways of the Lord that they've already seen. Look at verse 31. Moses said, these people have committed a great sin. Verse 32, yet now, if you will, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book. In other words, he's saying, me for them. If you're not going to forgive them, me for them. Now, where do we see that in Scripture? Christ. Isn't that the essence of Christ? Me for them. Isn't that what the Father sent His Son to do? Me for them. That's exactly it. And now remember who it is specifically that is appearing to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And remember who it is specifically who's talking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 12 make it very clear that it was Christ, that is God the Son, pre-incarnate. Before He was incarnated as a man in the person of Jesus, it's Christ pre-incarnate who appeared to Abraham, John 8:44. Abraham longed to see my day. He saw it and was glad. They said, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? He said, surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the, name of the, uh, is the name of God. Every time it says the Lord with the little small capitals there, it's actually translating Yahweh or Jehovah, which means I am. I am the eternal one, the never changing one, the promise making, promise keeping God, never failing. That's who I am. So it, it's Christ who's speaking to Abraham. It's Christ who is speaking to Moses. So you see, Christ is teaching Moses to have the heart of Christ. Christ is teaching Moses to have the heart of Christ. You see it? You see how Moses says, me for them? Christ loves that. God loves that. He's going, exactly, exactly. You see how they're growing through this kind of interchange that the Lord is provoking them into? So it is is Moses who is learning and growing. 
It is Abraham who is learning and growing. Just like you might to one of your children when they get to be the appropriate age, and they wouldn't have to be really old to do this, you might encounter a situation, it's a good uh, teaching opportunity, and you might pretend like you don't know what to do in this situation as a parent. And, of course, you know the best thing to do, but you may act like, hey, come here, look at this. I don't know, what do you think I should do here? Oh, I, well, Dad, I mean, you can't, well, do you think I should do X? Well, Dad, no, you can't, you can't do X because thus and so and the other thing. You have to do this other thing over here. Well, who's learning? Who's growing in that circumstance? The child, not the parent. Now, this is exactly what the Lord is doing with Abraham and Moses in these two situations. So in Genesis 18, Abraham basically makes the same argument to the Lord as Moses does in Exodus 32. He just does it in a little bit of a less sophisticated way. He gets God to agree to spare Sodom for 50 righteous, and then he keeps whittling it down little by little till he gets all the way down to 10 righteous, and the Lord says that he will spare the city for the sake of 10. Now, what what Abraham is really concerned with here is his nephew Lot and Lot's family who live in Sodom. Now, you've got to remember Abraham has already delivered Lot and his family, and to deliver them, he had to deliver the whole city when they were taken captive by the kings of the east back in Genesis 14. That shows Abraham's love and devotion to his nephew and his nephew's family. But what Abraham does not know, but he's going to learn as we go forward, is that there are not ten righteous in Saul. They are not ten righteous. Lot will not be able to even get his whole family to leave with him. And when he, the ones he can get to leave, one's going to turn, look back. And, and it's going to be judge. But nevertheless, God is going to rescue the righteous, and arguably some who weren't exactly righteous, and then judge the wicked. He's going to do all of it. He's going he's to work not just judgment, but also righteousness. Now, remember, righteousness has to cut in a couple of ways here because righteousness means, first of all, God's uprightness, which means he's going to judge wickedness for being wicked. But once God promises to save, once he promises to redeem, once he promises to forgive sin and deliver from sin, then part of righteousness means God keeping his promises, right? So now righteousness cuts in two different directions. He's got to judge the wicked. He's also got to save. So it's a double-edged sword from that point on. God's going to work judgment. God's going to work righteousness in two different directions. And God is going to work loving kindness. God doesn't spell all of this out to Abraham right now, but Abraham's about to see it. He's about to see it in action which is a whole lot more powerful than having it just explained in abstract terms. In this way, God is going to fulfill Jeremiah 9.24, working, loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now, as we turn toward application of, of this really amazing 
passage, I want to I want to call attention to the methodology that God is using here with His two sons, uh, Abraham and Moses, because this is the methodology God uses with all His children, which means it's the methodology that God uses with us. Um, and because we're supposed to pick up on this methodology. We're supposed to notice it. It's part of us growing in wisdom. And we're supposed to imitate it because God, uh, as good children. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, he's, he's, some, he's giving a broad command here, something that connects up all kinds of different commands. Be imitators of God as dear children. Be imitators of God as dear children. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So what it means for us to be image, we imitate. We do what God does. We reflect his character. Now, the pattern we see with God and with Christ in the Bible is that when children are small, when, they're, when people are early in the school of discipleship, God emphasizes very basic things, primarily obedience. He doesn't give a lot of explanation when his children are small. He expects obedience whether or not they have an explanation. Obey first, and then you may get an explanation. But you do not get an explanation as a condition for obedience. Just like if you're a parent and you have little kids and tell them, get your shoes on and get in the car we're about to leave. There's two different responses you can have there. You can have one child who cheerfully and promptly begins to put their shoes on because they're obeying. And as they're doing this, they say, where are we going? Well, if they do that, if you're a godly parent who is imitating God... You're probably happy to give that explanation and tell them as long as it's not a surprise. And then you're going to go, well, it's a surprise, right? But if they're obeying, then you'll probably be happy to tell them and answer that question. Because their question is not a, 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 it's not a reflection of disobedience or rebellion or stubbornness or like, I will be the judge of whether we go anywhere or not. I want to know where we're going. And then I'll decide if I want to put my shoes on. But if you have a child who makes no movement and sits there and looks at you with a sullen look on their face and says, where are we going? And it's obvious that it's a condition for them making a decision or not. If you give an explanation to them, you're making a mistake. Because you're not imitating God anymore. That's not what God does. What does Jesus do when his disciples at the beginning? Follow me. Where are we going? <laughs> Follow me. <laughs> he says, I will make you fishers of men. He gives a general promise. It's like, well, whatever that means. But he doesn't give him any specifics about where we're going. It's just follow me. That's the same thing that God does when he calls Abraham. And remember, it's Christ calling Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. What does he say? In so many words, follow me to a land I will show you. And then he gives him these big sweeping promises. But again, there's no specifics. 
And Abraham it makes clear in Hebrews 11, he does not know where he's going. So, so here is Christ, pre-incarnate, saying, Abraham, follow me. Same thing he's going to say to the disciples, follow me. Not a lot of explanations uh, up front there in the early days. But we'll see later on, later on in Christ's ministry, as he's getting closer to the crucifixion, the disciples are maturing. He begins to deal with them in a different way. He begins to do what we see Christ doing with Abraham in Genesis 18. Shall I hide? Now he's like, am I going to continue to not let Abraham know what's going on? Am I going to continue to treat him like a little kid when he's not a little kid anymore? He's growing up. He's learning a lot. He's maturing. Now it's time for me to bring him in. And I start telling him things and laying things before him that are going to stretch him. I'm going to pull him into conversations and force him to deal with issues. And I'm going to stretch him and grow him and mature him more and more. And that's what we see Christ doing with the disciples In John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants. Now, in the book of Galatians, little kids are analogized to servants. Not in the sense that they are slave labor, but in the sense that Paul talks about. Servants don't know what's going on. Servants aren't told the why and the wherefore for everything. Servants are simply told what to do. And that's what little kids are done. Paul points it out in the Galatians. He says, even if you have a, a little boy who's a prince or a little girl who's a princess and they're going to inherit the throne and the kingdom, still when they're little, they're put under maids and stewards and tutors and guardians and they're told when to get up, when to go to sleep, when to eat, what to eat, what not to eat. They're told everything. And they're not given any explanations. You're just told to do it. That's even true for the prince and the princess because they're little. It changes, though, when they've gotten more mature. So Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things from my Father I have made known to you. Now he makes clear that this friendship he's talking about still involves authority. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. This is a friendship with authority. It's a, there's still authority. There's still discipleship. He's still the Lord. But now he tells the disciples what's going on so that they can continue to grow. You can see an example of it in Matthew chapter 16. This is right after Peter has confessed to Jesus, you are the Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So see, that's maturity. Peter's able to confess that of his own lips based on everything he's seen and heard from Jesus. That's a certain amount of maturity there. So Jesus says, uh, it says in uh, Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Based on this new level of maturity, Jesus began to show to his disciples what's going on. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He lays, this is what's about to happen. This is what's about to happen. He tells them. 
And what does it do? It provokes Peter into a conversation. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you. Same language, exactly, that Abraham used with the Lord in Genesis 18. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And then Jesus has to rebuke him for standing in the way of the will of God. But you see the same technique here. Now, probably all the disciples were thinking the same thing Peter was because they're going to think, this is nuts. This is nuts. It's like we couldn't get him to go to Jerusalem before. He's up in Galilee staying away from them. Now that they're going to kill him, he's insistent on going. And he's saying that's what's going to happen. This makes no sense. It's just Peter had the guts to go and confront him. But again, who's learning here? Jesus is not learning anything here. Peter's learning. The other disciples are learning. And so that's God's method with his children. When they're little, the emphasis is obedience. And explanations are not given because it is obedience that is commanded. You've got to have that foundation, parents. You've got to lay that foundation when they're little so you can build on it as they are maturing. Now, when kids get into the, the teenage years, they become young men and young women, we see a different approach in the scriptures. We see what we find in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is basically a series of conversations between Solomon the king, the wisest man on the face of the earth, and his teenage son, who is going to inherit the throne. And so what are they talking about? Now, everything, you name it, girls, power, gangs, strength, being tough, getting creds, um, all of this stuff, money, riches, wealth, and your fame, you know, you name it. They're talking about all of that stuff, but they're not talking to that when they're little. They're talking that when there is a, a teenager. Now notice what it presupposes. It presupposes a particular relationship between Solomon and his son. And when we get to Proverbs 31, we're going to see the queen mother, uh, our Proverbs 30, right there near the end, we're going to see the queen mother addressing the son. Basically telling her, let me tell you what kind of girl you ought to be interested in and the kind of girl you ought not to be interested in. So his mom is going to get involved with that too. It presupposes a particular kind of relationship between them or those conversations aren't going to happen. Okay, If you picture the typical American uh, uh, family and household today, what kind of conversations do you hear between the teenagers and the parents? None. You don't hear any conversations. You hear arguments. You hear yelling. You hear resentment. You hear rebellion. But you don't hear any conversations because the relationship is not there because the foundation has not been laid when they were little. So you've got to have that kind of relationship. You have to have the foundation already laid so that when in the teenage years you have going on the book of Proverbs 
You have conversation. And the kids want the conversations. If they don't want them, you're not going to have them. So they want them. They want mom and dad talking to them about all of this stuff that's in the book of Proverbs. So a handy way to think about this as parents, if you're, remember, because all parenting is, is imitating God. Because God's the perfect parent. He's the perfect father. He shows us how to do it. All through the Bible, he shows us how to do it. Do what he does. Imitate him. Okay? That's what you do. So if we're going to imitate God, because don't get lost like when they're little, you can just focus on little things because when they're that small, you're so much bigger than they are. You're so much stronger than they are. You're so much smarter than you are. You can manipulate them. You can uh, either physically or trick them or in in the way that you reason and so forth. And you can get by without actually teaching them obedience. But you're not going to have the foundation you need by the time they come to the teenage years. Look at the conversations in Proverbs. Look at the relationship that's presupposed there and understand that's where you need to be when your kids are in the teenage years. Okay. You need to be there. So if you're going to be there, then back up. Where do you need to be now when they're two? or five, or eight? Where do you have to be so that your book of Proverbs in the teenage years? Because that's where you need to be so that they turn out to be who they're supposed to be. That's I think, is a handy way of, of doing it. And it helps um, impress upon you how, what imitating God means at each stage along the way. So we are supposed to imitate God. We want to use his methods. This is the way he does it. That's what we need to do. So we need to, I want to suggest three areas very quickly as we close, three areas where we want to imitate this methodology we see with God. Okay, I've already mentioned children whom he trusts to us. That's one. The other one is with ourselves. We want to imitate, we want to be aware of this methodology God uses with ourselves so that we ourselves can cooperate with God in this teaching process, okay? In other words, we need to be aware when we encounter some kind of trial, when we encounter some kind of hardship, when God puts us in a situation that forces us to articulate and to advocate who God is and what God stands for. And basically, if you want to understand church history, church history is a series of Christ doing exactly that with his disciples generation after generation. You can see, during the ministry of Christ, what is the big issue? Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus put to them. He's going to require them to articulate through their own sinful minds, through their own sinful lips, the bottom line of who he has revealed himself to be and who has shown himself to be. So they say, well, people say all kinds of stuff. They say everything. You're this, that, all over the place. Well, who do you say that I am? See, they have to articulate it. They've got to advocate it. 
you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay. Blessed are you, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my Father in heaven. So even though this involves sinful fallen people, this articulation and advocacy process, it's not a man-made process. It's God's own way of growing up his kids. By the time we get into the book of Acts, into the first century, what becomes the burning issue? Jew and Gentile believers being one together in the church. Are they first class and second class? Or are they one? Are they the same? And because of the way that issue came about and because of what it was attached to in the first century, Paul correctly said, you may think this just involves seating arrangements at the church potluck, but I'm telling you the gospel is at stake with this issue. And it was. When they move on from that, they get to where the burning issue is the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Jesus forces them to articulate and advocate on the basis of this how? By heresy, heresy coming into the church and false philosophies outside the church. So they have to do that. And so they grow more and more. Then it becomes the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit then that becomes the burning issue. It's forced on them by heresies within and, and false philosophies without. And then they have to articulate this. And it's the same thing with every single generation. Jesus does the same thing over and over and over. He forces us to articulate to a new level and to advocate to a new level the faith in some area of life that because of the way it has arisen and what it's connected to at that time and in that culture, the gospel is at stake. In our time, it's sexuality. Did any of us want this? Nope. Jesus didn't ask us. He gives rise to false teaching within, false philosophies without, and he is forcing us if we're going to take up the mantle, to have to articulate to a deeper level exactly what is revealed to us in the scriptures about sexuality and how it connects up to who God is and what he does and the opportunities and the callings we have. And and, uh, this is a challenge that we're still in uh, today. But I just want you to see it's the same methods over, over, over again. And with us personally, we need to cooperate. It it works a lot better if we understand what God does and what his methods are. And so personally or as a church, when we get into one of these situations, we don't light our hair on fire and we don't panic. We go, oh, I know what this is. I know what this is. I've read Genesis 18. I saw what you did with Abraham. I've read Exodus 32. I saw what you did with Moses. I saw what you did with the disciples. I know what you're doing. If we're able to see that and we know where we are and we can cooperate with it, we are going to learn a lot more. This is what Psalm 32 when it is talking about when it says, Don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding and must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they won't come near you. Why is that? Because the horse and the mule don't understand what's going on. They don't understand. We're not supposed to be like them. We're supposed to pay attention. 
pay attention to what God does through Scripture because He does it over and over and over again. He's doing it with us. We're supposed to go, oh, I know what this is. God, this is a teaching moment. Teaching moments aren't always fun. But this is a teaching moment. We know where we are. We need to respond with wisdom and maturity. Number two, we need it and we need to notice it because we need to help one another in this process. We need to help the church as a whole. Whether it's a local church, we need to go, hey, can't you see what Jesus is doing with the, with the issue of sexuality in our day? Can't you see it? Don't you recognize it? Don't you see the pattern? This is the same thing. So what are we going to do, run from this? That's like running from our own blessing. That's like running from our own growth. But we face that as individual Christians too, and we need to lend a helping hand to one another because a lot of times when you're in the spotlight, you don't recognize the story so well as somebody who is standing to the side of the spotlight. It's a lot easier to see when you're, when you're the one not in it but it's your friend, it's your brother, it's your sister. And then you you see it, and they're going, man, you're not going to believe what's happening to me. This is what's happening to me. You're not going to believe it. And you can see that they're sinking under the weight of it and so forth. But when you're standing to the side, you can go, dude, don't you recognize the story? This is the story that's over and over. Don't you see You're in the story. Don't you see what God's doing here? Man, come on. Let's go. Come on. I'm here. I'm with you. We have to do that for one another over and over. And we're supposed to do that with one another. And then, as I already mentioned, God kind of puts the icing on all of this imitation business by giving us little ones who are going to imitate us. You see... Because we don't stop, just because we become parents, we don't stop being God's children. And God is working with us through our children just as much as he's working with them through us. Never forget that. You're always a child of God, even when you're a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent. And so we want to, in all these ways, we want to love God's ways. We want to love his methodology because it's perfect. We want to recognize it. We want to cooperate with it. We want to help one another recognize it and to grow. And we want to thank God for the privilege of imitating us, imitating him with regard to the little imitators that he gives us. All in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.